Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So here's a funny little reminiscence for y'all. When I first started Detoxicity, my goal was to interview everybody in person and walk around with a recorder and go from place to place and just talk to people that are in the New York area. That's where I would be confined to. And right after I decided to start the podcast, COVID happened and we couldn't meet in person anymore. And I pivoted to using Zoom and ultimately other software to record people. And that allowed me to spread my wings, as it were, and interview folks from New York to LA and back. And even interview some folks uh, in our neighbors to the north in Canada. So I appreciate the fact that uh, this now has a more global reach uh, of guests. And uh, for this particular episode, we're going to head over to Denver, Colorado. We're going to be talking to Patrick Brown. Patrick is the newly minted owner of Twist and Shout. Uh, Twist and Shout is the Mile High City's number one independent record store. And Patrick and I talk about the thrills and hard work that comes with being a brand new business owner, what management tactics he's learned over the years. Uh, We travel back in time to Patrick's time at NYU Film School right here in New York City. And we find out how he became obsessed with media. He still watches more movies in a week than I probably watch in a year. Um, We talk about how Patrick's queerness informed his life and how he tries to create safe spaces in every environment he's a part of. Those are so important. And why he doesn't feel that there's enough being done for mental health in either the record store slash music community or the queer community. So without further ado, here is Patrick Brown. Hi, my name is Patrick Brown and I live in Denver, Colorado. I just recently took over ownership of Twist and Shout Records. Congratulations. Where I've worked for... 30 years. Thank you. Thank you. So that's been a big shift in my life. Actually, it hasn't been a big shift, but it's been a shift switching from running it to owning it. And I think that's a simple starter. I've done a lot of stuff in my life, but that's enough to tell you who I am. What's the biggest shift between running something and owning something? The level of responsibility, I think. I hired everyone who worked there over the last 30 years or 28 of those 30 years. I trained everybody, but being responsible for making sure that they are all paid and taken care of and that things are running has been a bigger shift. It's been a mental shift of my responsibilities changing. And presumably you had an idea of all of that stuff going into taking over ownership and you're okay with that 
added, you know, because it's a lot. Yeah, I was ready for that. I was already telling people what to do and telling them how to do it. So that hasn't changed much. People are used to me bossing them <laughs> around, I guess. But um, but how we interact has a slightly different feel for me, sure, maybe. that makes sense. So. What led you to deciding that you wanted to own a record store in 2022? Well, Twist and Shout's doing extremely well. So now's a great time to be running a record store, at least this one. A lot of other stores I know are doing well as well. So 2021 was our best year in over a wow. decade. So in sheer terms of that stuff, it's a good time. But knowing how to run it and jumping into something as big as that, uh, that's something that I needed three decades of training to get ready for. And in terms of wanting to do it, knowing that I didn't own it and knowing that it wasn't mine and that the owners could say, well, we're retiring and we're closing the store, potentially, I had to think about what I have to do for the rest of my life. So when the opportunity arose, I was absolutely ready for that. That's amazing. Because I've been thinking about that for a while. When you started working at Twist and Shout 30 years ago, did you mm -hmm. have... 30 years ago last week. Oh, happy fact. anniversary. So. <laughs> Did you have any idea that it would go on to be this thing that would now be yours? No, I had no idea. No inkling of that at all. In fact, funny story is the owners, Paul and Jill, they didn't want me to work there at first. And my ex had a job there and he recommended that they might want me to help out with something. At the time, it was pretty much a CD-only store, and we were transitioning from having long boxes out oh, in the wow. bin. Yeah, so I think maybe many of the listeners will not know what you're <laughs> talking about, but having long boxes out in the record bins to having uh, a library of CDs in the back and just browsers mm -hmm. out in there, and they deemed that I would probably be competent to open those long boxes and that was my first job there. You were a there. long box opener. They said, okay. That was all I was allowed to do at first. And within a week, they were like, all right, he's good. <laughs> so I worked up from the very, very bottom there. So Right on. So you are at least the second guest that I've had on here that is from Denver. And from the show notes that you gave me prior to us talking, Aside from college and a little point in time when you were a baby, Denver has kind of been your whole life. As someone yeah. who has never been to Denver, what is it about that city that does it for you? Well, two things. It used to be a very easy, comfortable, and relatively inexpensive city for something that had a reasonable amount of culture. That's not as much the case anymore. It's comparable to San Francisco and New York in terms of housing oh, wow. pricing. Yeah. Average one bedroom apartment is $1,900. That is comparable to yeah. uh, maybe even slightly more expensive than New York City. Exactly. It's become the cool spot for a lot of people for different right. reasons. And that's really changed the dynamic of the city. I was just in New York in September and it just felt like an alien place to me from the last time I was there or, the, or when I lived there, certainly. And Denver has some of that feel sometimes, too. I get to see the slow progress here. It's not the shock of going there a decade later and going, 
Where is everything I used <laughs> right. to like? It's the slow progress of that place closed and well, they probably needed to close anyway. And then these other places open up and I don't want to go in there. And for every few things that open up, there's a couple places that are cool and I do like them and I appreciate what they're doing. And there are places that hang on that are still there. They're awesome. So it still has some of that feel, but one of the things that I used to really love about Denver in the 90s in particular was that it felt, no offense attended, but people from New York had a uh, had a little haughty, like, I'm from New York, and so I, mean, I that's, know. That's what we do, know, Patrick. Cool. It's us. <laughs> I understand. I live there. I get it, you know, but, and I have absolutely had that attitude when I was there. LA was something. San Francisco was something. Chicago was something. Denver was a cow town in a lot of people's minds. And nobody from Denver, they were like, well, if you don't get it and you don't like what's here, fine, go somewhere else. I don't care. There was a sort of like, if you don't like it, then leave attitude. And there was a coolness about that. A sort of like, okay, you don't appreciate it because we're not a 24-hour city necessarily and you can't go out at 3.30 a.m. on a Tuesday and get great dumplings. <laughs> but so what? There are other things the city has on offer. If you don't see that and you aren't willing to adjust to it, then you're not a Denver person. That's it. However, Denver did try to, pre-pandemic, try to shift towards that more 24-hour kind of culture. And it's made a change in the city for Interesting. sure. So I want to take it back with you and... Was little Patrick always a music guy? Was working in a record store something that was in your sights early or did it just kind of like happen that way? I was always a music guy and I was always a film guy. And I went to film school at NYU and in late 80s, early 90s. And so I lived on wa- overlooking Washington Square Park for nice. four years and was there at a very cool time. But it was transitioning even then i remember when the gap opened up on saint mark's place and people were like this is it this is the end of it and now that seems so quaint almost but it's yeah i went to film school i was all in for film but all my friends were also all in for music you're in the epicenter one of the music epicenters of the world and you can see anything any day of the week all the time you have to narrow down what you're going to do and just say, well, I guess I'm not going to see these two things this night. I'm going to have to go to this one instead. And I'm not going out Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'm going to have to just pick one or two of those. I mean, that's the thing in New York. And you just have access to everything, as yeah. you well know. I mean, it's just always there all the time. So I got to see a ton of music. I got to see movies all the time. I used to go to Cinema Village on 12th and University there and pay five bucks for a double feature or triple feature and just sit in there and watch two Bergman movies for five bucks. It was a different time, but I was equally into both of those things. I saw a million live bands while I was in school there. I saw a million movies and I've just kept going with both of those things. I always tell people I know a lot about music and whatever I know about music, I know more about film. Okay. When was it decided for you that film was sort of not the move for the future? When did you make that shit? I, well, making film is not for me, just as making music is not for me. I realized I don't have the temperament for it when I was at NYU. By sophomore year, I said, the people who I think are doing interesting things here are very different people from who I am. And I think later I probably found other films that are more 
my speed. And if I had been exposed to that earlier, I might have said, oh, you can make films and be a person like I am and not be the super aggro, in charge of everything director. There are other ways to make movies. But I didn't know that then. And I kind of drifted away from wanting to create film back at that time because I thought you had to be a certain kind of thing. And I was not that thing. I'm not that aggressive and I'm not that pushy. I have the ego, but I don't think I have the drive the same way that some of those people do, you know? Understood. Some people would say that in order to run a business, you have to be kind of pushy, which I don't agree with, but some people have that mindset. <laughs> Even before you stepped into the ownership role, but as the running things guy, what is it about yeah. your temperament that has made you successful at, at, at what you do? Well, I agree. I don't think you need to be pushy, but I think you need to be confident. And I think you need to be decisive. And I think if you make a decision, just live with it, even if it's wrong. Say, oh, well, I won't do that next time. And I think you need to be kind also. And that's something that I'm generally very good at. You can catch me in my worst moments and someone might not agree. But in general, I think being calm and decisive and listening to people, those are the skills that I bring to it. It's not easy to get under my skin and get me wound up. I say, this is what we're going to do, and then we're going to do it. I make decisions and move forward. I'm not wishy-washy about things. But I listen to people, and I solicit suggestions and ideas, and I also delegate. I will tell people, I want you to take charge of this and then just check in with me. I don't want to have to think it through with you. You do your part, and then come to me, and I'll help you bang it into shape a little bit. I feel like that trust is super important. When I was a, a boss, when I was a people manager, I had that problem is where I would delegate things to people, but would constantly be checking on them to make sure that it was done the way I wanted it to be done. And now <laughs> with 20 years behind me of not managing people, I realize that you have to let people kind of do their thing and trust that they will do their thing the right way, even if it's right. a way that's different from yours. But that trust is a big part of a, just letting go of the whole stress of being someone that is nominally in charge of something, but also it gives the other people confidence in, in, in the fact that you trust them to have a brain. Absolutely. Yeah. The flip side is you have to recognize when someone can't do it. That's less common. I'm good at picking the right people to do things. I'm good at recognizing people's skills and playing to their strengths rather than um, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. So to speak, super important. Know? So yeah. when you and I first met, this was at one of the uh, conventions and I had on a, I want to say I had on a t-shirt that said something like no sexism, no homophobia, no transphobia, blah, blah, blah. And you walked up to me and you were like, I like your shirt, which immediately pegged you as one of my people. And I think that the arena that we were both working in at the time is maybe not so unusual for queer people, but is unusual for out queer people. And I am curious about what your journey was just in general to the self-discovery kind of piece and also what it's like to be working in music, working in a record store, owning a record store, if your queerness has anything to do with that at all. Nah, you bet it does. I, I will say this. My first order of business from when I took over the store was to get stickers made with the Progress Chevron 
pride flag with our logo on it and shirts with that as well. I need need to get uh, one of these. Yeah, it's definitely made an impact. I mean, I'm not sure what the journey was exactly because I was out from day one at work. It wasn't something I had to grapple with. As I said, my ex recommended me to them so they knew we were partners from the get-go. So that was never a question. That was never uh, an issue from the beginning, which is to the credit of the owners that they never made it an issue, never thought anything bad of it. They had uh, queer employees before either of us worked there as well. So they were acclimated to this somewhat. I mean, obviously, not being a queer person, you're going to be learning new stuff all the time. And you will as a queer person as well. But if you are employing and around people, you're going to keep learning things that maybe people who are involved in the community are learning a lot faster or learned a lot earlier. But they were they were good people from the get-go, and I got to give them props for that. It was never an issue. It was never a question. And they made an environment where it was cool to be whatever you were. Prior to that, before Twist even came into the picture, what was your ah. personal journey? Because, I mean, if we're doing some math here and subtracting 30 years from the age you are now, you were a teenager, and you were out and with a partner in 1992. Yeah is still, even as a New Yorker, something that I I certainly didn't see very much of. So I I would imagine in Denver, Colorado, there was even less of that. So my journey was, I knew what was up with me when I was a teenager, younger, but I didn't meet people that I knew were like me until probably my junior year of high school. And then I found my people and I had a small group of friends there. I had friends before that who I was good friends with, but they were all my straight friends. When I found my little group, I knew these are my people. And none of us were out to each other at the time, but we all just clicked so much more deeply than I had with anybody prior to that. And when we all came out to each other later, it was like, yeah, we'll go, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and these are still good friends of mine. Listen. These are still people I'm in touch with regularly who I met when I was 16, 17. And that laid the groundwork. 80s were an interesting time because you had Boy George and the Smiths and all these band, catch up boys, maybe not saying it flat out, but dancing around the idea. What do you call it? A lot of innuendo? Is, is that what you would call it? Like there is saying it without actually saying it. Yeah, exactly. And you had people out there going to bat for it who maybe weren't part of community, Madonna or people who were pushing the boundaries around that. So the dialogue may have been a little bit more open than you might have seen yourself or you might have experienced yourself. And in a place like Denver and other smaller cities, I think that you get these tight-knit communities because if a smaller group of people have a thing in common, they're going to bond a little bit more closely than a bigger city where you have a smorgasbord of options. I I feel that. So I had my small group of friends. We all came out to each other later, but we all knew this earlier. We all knew it for ourselves earlier. But I went to school and then had to build a whole new group of friends. And all my best friends at school, once again, no offense, but they were all straight. (laughs) Awesome people, still in touch with most of them too. But all my best friends, all my roommates, all straight. And well, Patrick. Yeah, as far as I know, I shouldn't make assumptions, but being in New York City, this is the time of ACT UP and Queer Nation, and 
There was a lot of activism and a lot of public talk around it. It was right in the critical point in the AIDS crisis. So there was a lot of public dialogue around these things. So it wasn't not normal to have that in the air. But I will also say I went to film school there and there was a guy in a class of mine who was out and he was involved in a lot of activism around campus and stuff. And it wasn't my style, I'll say, being in the city, the out and protesting not something I could do at that time, not something I felt comfortable enough to do, even though I knew myself inside, the sort of in-your-face activism was not my kind of thing, even if it was necessary, and I have total respect for that. But not at 18, 19, I couldn't bring myself there. I probably could now. I, I don't so. know that many 18 or 19-year-olds, I mean, maybe now because of social media, but certainly in our general age range, and you and I are fairly close in age, I, I don't think yeah. a lot of people, even if they realize their sexuality within themselves, would have felt comfortable putting themselves on the front lines like that. Because even now it opens you up to right. a lot of shit. But back then it opened you up to yes. a lot of shit that you weren't protected from. Right. Yeah. And obviously there was a lot of community in New York that I didn't plug into. I mean, one of the things was I was underage and I didn't know that you could probably still go to the bars oh, and yes, stuff and you probably could. if I had known that I might have had a different experience there but I had my friends and I loved hanging out with them and I just had a whole different experience there even though I was blocks away from Christopher right. Street and a lot of things going on there so I knew myself I didn't come out to people there really because it didn't factor into things I just didn't date anybody and I was had a good time hanging out with my friends. So that was kind of it. But there was a lot in the air. And I started to mention a classmate of mine who made a film, and I won't name names, but he made a film that I didn't think was very good. The whole premise of it was a guy in his dorm room turns down a girl, his male friend comes and hangs out in the room, and then they kiss. And that's the whole (laughs) movie. It's totally innocent, and it's totally innocuous. At least it feels that way. But the class lost their shit. People gasped or went, oh my God. And when you offer comments on your films, another classmate went, ah, I mean, I knew you were going to have gay guys in there, but I didn't think you'd actually have them kiss. Like that was the most shocking thing. When I said that New York had that all in the air and around, you still had some of this provincial attitudes about things. It was the least shocking thing I've ever seen. I mean, it was But it was as provocative as he intended it to be. And I kind of went, oh, I kind of rolled my eyes because I was like, all they're doing is kissing? Come on. But other people were just gasping. They were literally gasping out loud at how outrageous they thought it was. And so I don't know, even in the epicenter of culture and everything, still (laughs) something as simple as that seemed outrageous. It's a testament to how far we've come. Younger people maybe don't have the benefit of seeing progress happen over time but i remember when there was the first kiss between two guys on primetime tv it was like melrose place or something like that in 1992 or 1993 and that's not like old history it's not the 1800s it's not the 40s or 50s it's 1992 or 1993 like a time period i can remember very very clearly and to get from that to a point where now we have drag race on tv will and grace is 20 years old we've got pose we've got all this other stuff and it really does underline the fact that so much progress has been made 
in just three decades and yeah. continues to be made, maybe not as quickly as some of us, including myself, would like for it to be made, but it is being made. Yeah, it is. And what's been interesting for me is seeing that it's sort of moving in different arenas than I maybe expected. You kind of want to see progress going in a direction. And sometimes this movement sort of stalls out or loses steam because the focus moves mm -hmm. over here instead. And suddenly this is the big deal. And that's been really interesting. And I hate to frame it in a way that makes it sound in any way positive, but it's an interesting moment right now where there's so much regressive legislation going on. And I don't know how we're going to fight it all. we got to battle coming we definitely do i mean it's happening yeah, it's it is. Not we're happening in the now. midst of it you know flipping that over to what you do now i'm fortunate to know and have befriended a lot of record store owners and buyers and workers and they all kind of fit into a pretty limited demographic area yeah i, know yeah, what I mean they're yeah. they're all kind of middle-aged straight white dudes yeah as a middle-aged, not straight white dude. Do you feel that you're ever like singled out or treated a certain way or that anyone feels a different way about you because of your sexual orientation? Not in my day-to-day -day experience. And I would say I'm also, I'm open to anyone who asks. I am not the front lines flag-waving person. Right. So I don't quote unquote read as gay right off the bat. So people sometimes falsely assume my sexuality and, or my thoughts on gender or anything like that. And I can kind of be stealth with that. And sometimes people get to know me and then they go, oh, he's gay, really? <laughs> you know, and that's something that to me, it's like, well, duh, but it's not to there a lot are of folks. A million and so different ways to I, be gay. Exactly. To your question, though, I, I don't feel I'm treated differently by people. Early on, when I came to terms with myself, I just said, if people don't like me this way, I don't need them in my life. And that's always been a fundamental way I've operated. I don't lose any sleep over someone who doesn't have time for queerness or whatever. I mean, we can debate over fine points of things. Everybody's different. But if someone has a fundamental problem with gayness or queerness or transness or any kind of gender stuff, I got no time for that. We can debate it. But if your debate starts with whether it's right or wrong, yeah. we're done. It's not a debate then. You're wrong and I'm not going to listen to you. And that's that. I'm very cut and dry with that. And if somebody comes at me homophobic, I'm never speaking to them again. It's pretty much how it goes. I got no time for it. And so if somebody thinks differently of me, I'm not aware of it because they wouldn't have the guts to say it to my face, I don't think. And if they did, I would say, get the fuck out of my store and don't come back. I mean, it's as simple as Amen. that. I got no use for it. In the industry, in a broader sense, though, again, I just don't feel like I've ever been treated any differently. The thing that you didn't add into the demographic is typically you've got a liberal Yes. attitude with a lot of the, these straight white cis men who are running record stores and deeply involved in the industry. Most of them 
in this industry in particular tend towards the liberal side of things. Not everybody, obviously, but I think most of them either genuinely feel good about it and they're like, yeah, we have another queer owner over here. Right. That's great. Or they at least want to present that. At least they want to appear yeah, that way. I, you I know? think that's um, an important differentiation to make. I definitely see a liberal bent. And a lot of it feels sincere. Some of it feels performative. But I appreciate and respect that people at least want to be on the right side of history. Yes, exactly. And so, again, I think that if somebody harbored some kind of, oh, yeah, well, he's gay, but I don't want to talk about it. I mean, they wouldn't say that and they wouldn't bring it up and they'd still talk to me and they'd be respectful and professional with me. And maybe we're not going to be best friends, but as long as they're, as you say, on the right side of history, I'm all right with that. Right. You know, they don't have to watch. Drag Race. <laughs> now, I do want to talk about gender norms, and I don't know that I've really had the chance to discuss this with any of my other queer guests. But when I was growing up and, and even up until I'd say maybe like five years ago or so, there was this big mask versus femme thing. And... There's a lot of, as you said, reading as gay, where people, they make assumptions that if someone assigns to certain stereotypes, they're gay. And if they don't assign to certain stereotypes, they're straight, as if those binaries are so like fixed when they're absolutely not. Right. Does that frustrate you at all? Do you occasionally not feel gay enough? Do you feel pressure to act a certain way or talk a certain way or be a certain way? Does that dichotomy ever cross your mind? No, I don't feel the pressure because I'm very comfortable with who I am and I'm very centered in who I am. I guess that's an easy way sure. to sum it up. I mean, I won't say I don't hear them and I don't respond at all, but if someone tells me I should be more mask, I'm probably going to react by being more femme <laughs> in their presence, specifically to poke them. People are who they are and I feel like everyone is a mix of those things. It's different proportions in every person, but to highlight one or the other specifically to play up a certain thing, I feel like you need to just be you and not play into stereotypes of what you should be. There's the same way we were talking performative liberalism or progressivism earlier. People have performative masculinity. And I, I find on a personal level, I'm attracted to masculine seeming guys, but on a cultural level, all the stereotypes that so often get lumped in with that, especially in the queer community, just gross yeah. me out. Just be who you are. I think there's so many stereotypes within the queer community also that are reinforced there and played up to an end. It's kind of a masculine drag, except that I think people buy into it a little too much. People take it too seriously and they don't have fun with it. The thing that I like about drag and drag race is you're playing around with ideas of gender and people can mix that up a lot more. And that's interesting. I think when I see a group of leather guys with cigars and whiskey go into their Jeeps and Harleys, it's like they're playing up a thing that's as every bit as stereotyped as an effeminate queen in glitter and, and rainbows and a thong. It's the same kind of thing to me. And when people buy into a stereotype too much because they feel that's how they have to be in a community rather than just being themselves. I don't respond well to that in general. I hear you. Thoughts. I hear you. We all contain multitudes, right? And I think yes. that, again, this is maybe speaking more specifically to our generation. When you're out, 
you're expected to conform to a particular set of ideals that really kind of sticks you in the binary. Like you're either supposed to be a, a, a daddy or a bear or, or somebody that's hyper masculine, blah, blah, blah. Or you're kind of a Nelly queen when uh, yeah. the reality is that both of those can be acting in a way. And you should just be who the fuck sure. you are. Again, yeah. we contain multitudes. I think that's one thing the kids yeah. have on us is that they're allowed to be queer or be trans or be whatever in any kind of way that feels comfortable for them. And there's not really so much emphasis placed on what's masculine and what's feminine. Like you, I'm attracted to masculine energy. Maybe not traditionally masculine. I'm attracted to dudes who don't make the average person's gaydar go off. The women that I'm attracted to tend to be more masculine as well. That's something that's inside me and it is what it is. But people should be like who they are. And we're recording this on Prince's birthday. Most of us should follow yeah. Prince's ex example and be whatever we are. And that's usually a mixture. And the percentages may right. be different levels at different times yeah. even. But yeah. Exactly. I was just going to tag onto that and say, yeah. And he's somebody who shifted in his presentation significantly yeah. over the years. And I think part of that, of course, is his returning to Jehovah's Witness as a faith. And so that speaks to the societal pressure on him to conform to certain ideas right. as well. And people are going to respond differently to those things over time as well. So I think there's a fluidity at some times in people's lives, especially in your late teens, puberty era through early mid 20s, that maybe starts to lock down a little more. And it's harder to shift around later if you don't kind of lock into a more open presentation, you know, and I don't know, it's, I see things changing out there and making it a little better. I meet so many guys who come out way late because they perceived gayness as one thing. And then they realize they're attracted to men and they have been the whole time, their whole life, but it wasn't until they hit 40 or something that they felt comfortable enough in themselves and secure maybe financially or away from their family enough to not have that pressure to say, you can't do that. That's mm -hmm. not okay. I mean, it's, people just have a lot on them. So I, I try not to knock it, but sometimes I kind of give a little eye roll about how people respond. I do to the same things, thing, you know? And, and yeah. I got to say, as, um, as Jehovah's Witnesses, Prince became later in life, he still loved a good blouse. He loved his yes, frills. Yes, always. indeed. Yes. The flowery tops <laughs> was always a thing for Prince. So doing what you do, which is super demanding yeah. and takes up a lot of time, I would imagine. What is your life when you are not in the shop? I watch movies and I listen to music. <laughs> <laughs> and I ride my bike. I'm going to just show you something here. This is... Oh, Patrick. Well, it goes and it goes and it goes. And then there's those next to it. I don't know if you can even see the stacks. But, you, you you do realize uh, there yeah. are only 24 then, hours in a day. Yes, exactly. And only seven days a week. I don't know what the Beatles were talking <laughs> about there. I used to watch the same movies over and over and over a lot and dive deep into filmmakers. And now I'd rather do the breadth and go expand in other directions. And I do the same with music. I listen to the same Miles record over and over and over or Prince record over and over and over. And now I'm like, who have I not heard? Who are these names that I don't know? But I, I feel like I expand and contract like that. I go back to the classics and then I don't get tired of them, but I say, all right, I've heard 
I've heard bitches brew enough. It's time to do some other jazz right. and make some space for more. I don't think that's common for people our age. This is just me talking out of my butt. I think as people get older, they cling tighter to the culture that they consumed when they were, I think there've even been studies about it when they're in their teens or in their early twenties, that sort of college age circle. Yeah. I wonder if it's because in both of our cases, we are surrounded by music and, and art as a professional thing. I wonder if that's what keeps us in the know as far as newer Engaged. stuff, or even if it's not newer stuff, well, different stuff. Do you feel like you continue to explore new avenues of music? Not as much as I used to. When I was working sure. in a store, okay. there was the Sony person or the Warner person would come by once a week with a big ass stack of promos. And mm-hmm. it was like, okay, I've got all of these free CDs to take home and listen to. And now I still, I'll go on, on Spotify or whatever. Well, I don't go on Spotify because Joe Rogan, I will go on Apple music or whatever and just see what's mm-hmm. out. And if there's something that I'm interested in, I'll listen to it and then make a determination from there as to whether I'm going to actually buy it. But even with artists that I like, it's not like, oh, there's a new blank, blank album coming out Friday. I'm going to buy it without having heard a note. I do think that one thing that streaming has done is it's made me a little bit more judicious in my music purchasing and music consumption. So I don't have as many shitty albums by musicians that I like. But I also think as the marketplace has gotten saturated, it's... Instead of checking out four or five new albums a week, I might check out one or two. Well, I'm in a unique position. I mean, at work, every Friday, we play nothing but new releases. So I hear all the new releases, but they're not the ones that I want to hear necessarily. I mean, I'm still working in the music store and we have customers. I'm not going to play the free jazz stuff that I want to hear that's dissonant and one track that's 76 (laughs) minutes long. That's what I want to go home and listen to, but that's not good for in-store play. So we play the new bigger releases that come out every week and some are to my taste and some aren't and some are fine and they're whatever they're good for in-store play but it's not anything i'm ever going to pick up and some are like oh my God, what is this but occasionally we hit the interesting stuff i set channels earlier on being really interested in jazz and international music that it's just an endless stream in those genres like there's not only older stuff being reissued all the time or older stuff that I'm just discovering and finding out about. But then there's new music coming out and new permutations of things that are interesting. I mean, I mentioned Tyshawn Sori. I saw him at this festival a few years ago. And he was playing with Roscoe Mitchell, who's a couple generations earlier. And I was there to see Roscoe Mitchell and his band and people in that band. And all I could do was watch Tyshawn. I was like, holy crap, this guy's amazing. And he was an amazing drummer. And then he gets up during one song, moves over to the piano. And then he was amazing there too. And I was like, who is this guy? And that started me down a new path. So I discover new music that way more than I do listening because not everyone releases CDs and I have stacks and stacks of things to be listened to. I have my new releases that I'm listening to now that came out in 2019. (laughs) I just have piles of music to process to get to the newest stuff that's out there. I want to pay more closer attention to wet leg and the new rolling coastal black rolling blackouts not in, in a rush, 2024 you know? <laughs> i mean i'll have to listen to them enough to make a best of the end of the year list but i'll miss some things for sure and i'll catch up with them two as, years from as now, we all so. do because the frequency yeah. 
with which music comes out now isn't the same as it was when you started in 92. I started in 93 and it, it, a thousand releases coming out a week in every conceivable format. It was 10 yeah. things. And, and, and that was it. So Yeah. There is literally more music made in every year than you could listen to in that year if you never slept and never stopped listening. It's just impossible. So I keep up with what I can and I follow my few artists that I really am into. I get everything Serengeti puts out and I'm up on Taishan Sori now. And those are the ones that I'll buy sound unheard and I'll just trust that they're going to take me the right place. And then now I have a different level of access right. to things. I can just take it home and say, oh, that sounds good. That this looks is my store. But I'm always going Take back. whatever I want. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But I, I go backwards as much as or more than I go forwards. I don't try and keep up and I never really have. I like what I like. And if it's new, great. If it came out in 1963, great. I'm just on whatever little weird little trip I am at any time. Yeah, it may not be new, but it, it's new to you. Yeah, exactly. One thing I wanted to cover just because I, this news came to me a couple of days ago and it kind of shook me a little bit is that in the retail community or in the record store community, I don't know how much talk there is about mental health, but we just had someone uh, take their own life recently. And I'm wondering if if the community is really paying attention to i guess there are a couple of different ways to attack this one is just kind of the community as a whole making sure that people are looking out for each other and in light of whether it's the supply chain shit or whether it's going through a pandemic and going through these cultural and racial uprisings that we're going through, making sure we're taking care of each other as a, a music community and whether we as individuals and as people that should be looking out for each other are taking care of each other. No, I don't think it's happening the way it should or could, but I think part of the problem is it's just, a major cultural shift to get there. It's not a simple thing. It's the resources. I mean, I was getting therapy in 2019 and 2020 leading up to the pandemic. And then the price of my therapy tripled and I had to drop out and I couldn't afford it. And I was on the higher end of people in the store in terms of making money, but it wasn't something I could do. And I don't know how other people cope with it. I started looking into therapists last year also, and I was a little more adamant that I want a queer therapist. Being an ally is not the same as being part of the community. And no disrespect to allies, you're all wonderful, but it is a different thing. It just really is. And finding that in a price range, availability, centrally, even in a bigger city like Denver, it's hard. And when people have specialized needs or desires around stuff like that, I don't think it's easy. And uh, even beyond that, even if they have the resources and the desire to do it and the willingness to do it, I think it's a difficult thing to get to if they don't necessarily have the tools to say, I do need to get this and it's something I need to be doing now. If they're not, I guess, self-aware enough or self-critical enough to be you know, in a space to be able to say, I have to get out there and find some support. I think it's a great idea to be able to do that, but I don't see it happening 
in the way that I would want it to, either in the queer community or the music industry community. Ah, it's a mess. It's right. just a mess. I'm wondering you know? what can be done to combat that or what can be done to make it happen? I mean, first of all, we need more queer therapists, probably yeah. the same way we need more therapists of color. Cause even in New Period. York, what, more therapists? yeah, I remember asking my previous yeah. therapist for a listing of black queer therapists and it was one page and we're in the biggest city in the country and yeah. it, it shouldn't be that way. And I think every part of our business glamorizes hustle culture and yeah. when i was managing a store we were working 14 15 hours or 12 to 14 hours because it was like you come in the shipment shows up you sign off on the shipment you load it up we didn't have a receiving crew we priced put everything out ran the register well tower did have a receiving crew so that was different okay. but after i was at tower i was at the whiz which was a regional chain and uh, you yeah, lived in New York City know. in the 90s, Louis. We, yeah. were, we were everything. We were receiving. We were the cashiers. We were customer service. We were everything. So it was constant nonstop work from open to close. And it, it can be a lot of work. And dealing with the public is exhausting. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, I will just say twist isn't like that. I don't want anyone working over 40 hours a week, including me. When your shift is done, get the yeah. hell out and don't it's, think about it. The work will be there tomorrow to get finished. I'm, gl I'm glad that there are people <laughs> so, who draw those lines now. It's a different time. I can't even imagine that. I mean, there were times when I was in my mid-20s when I would have stayed 12 hours, but I didn't have to, except during inventory right. once a year. But anyway, I think a healthy work-life balance is super important, and I try to maintain that myself. Pandemic has shifted a lot of that to where I'm watching more movies and not out on my bike as much as I'd like to be. But tomorrow I'm going to get out on it. So that'll be good. In terms of a broader cultural thing, it's something I'm going to talk to, look into here and find some way to facilitate it. It's a reflection of what's happening in the broader societal right. stuff. Right. I don't think it's a unique thing to the music community, except that I think that a lot of people who are involved in the music industry position themselves a little bit outside of mainstream right. society. I think that's a general thing that everybody has in common in this industry is that they perceive themselves as an outsider in one way or another. Not everybody, obviously, but I think a lot of people do. And they're a little living on the fringes. And these are the people that are being pushed under in any mainstream conversation when they're just being submerged and ignored. And we don't know what people are going through. It's really as simple don't. as that. So. And it, it, yeah. you know, it kind of goes back to, I think a lot of people being so afraid to speak up about what they're going yeah. through, whether that's valid or not is sort of a question of the individual, but it's like the saying, you can't get fed unless people know you're hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking to the mental health thing, after we had my coworker pass, if I, got sad and started crying at work. I just didn't hide that. If people needed to leave early or not come in, I just said, take your mental health day, please. Yeah. You know, hugs went up 10,000% that next couple weeks. But if I'm there as the owner crying in front of other people, I hope that made an environment where other people felt okay to express themselves. And I know everyone has their own take on expressing your emotions. And that is deeply rooted in family and culture and whatever. And that's different for everybody. But I hope that anyone who wanted to, it said, this is okay. You don't have to hide this. You don't have to 
go privately be sad or whatever. I would like to see that be a more open thing in general in society. And I hope that's something that comes through at my place. Yeah, I feel like I, all we can do individually, right, is try to make spaces safe for ourselves and for others. I mean, you're in a pretty unique position now as a business owner to have a safe space, even without being super explicit about it, just by virtue of the people that you hire and the things that you support, you're in a position to create a, a safe space for a lot of people. I was talking to some friends of mine who uh, live in Buffalo or near Buffalo, and they've got three kids and two of them are queer. And their house has now become the safe place for the queer kids in the community to hang out. And I, I think that's such an awesome thing whether it's a business or a home, to just have a place where people feel like they can be themselves and not be judged and openness is encouraged and love is encouraged and, and warmth is encouraged. All of those things, maybe more now than ever, are, are, are really needed. Yeah. Well, I, I agree and I want that to be something that's in my space implicitly, but I feel like even more than implicitly, and just making it a comfortable space, it, it really does need to be explicit. And I think I need to be more proactive about how I approach it and make sure that people explicitly know it's okay to be this or provide, I need to do something more overt rather than making it so people have to ask for it. I think there's got to be a better way to approach it. I'm figuring that yeah, out still. I'm still... Uh trying to work through it. But I mentioned to you in the forum that I volunteered at a queer right. youth space for 17 years and just seeing how that impacted on young people. It was incredible. It was a great space. I'm bummed to no longer be involved with it, but it definitely inspired how I want to approach it here. And going back to what I was saying earlier, the very first thing I did is said, I want pride flag stickers and I want a pride flag shirt with our logo. That was an explicit thing for me to do as the first act in there. So that's amazing. But yeah, I work in this youth space and just seeing the environment there where people could come in and maybe still be figuring their stuff out and not know stuff and just be able to be part of a dialogue about it. It was incredible to hear people who are 16, 17 years old using more sophisticated language about gender than I use. And it's because they're working with people in the social work field there who are talking about it with them. But having dialogues about that going on with young people was just really inspiring to be around. So I'm hoping to kind of put together an environment. It's still a workspace, but an environment where people are going to be comfortable to just be who they are and not have to think about that. It's you know? super important. And I appreciate yeah. the fact that you're... I got to figure out where the line is about being explicit versus right. implicit. And that's up to the individual. I, I love that you seem so secure in yourself, which <laughs> that's an aspiration of mine. I got to ask a silly question, which is where the hell do you live that every time you post on social media, there is a thrift store sitting in your lobby of shit that people are throwing out? I live four blocks from Twist and Shout. I live in central Denver and we have an apartment building. And it's actually diminished significantly with the current guy who's managing. He, if stuff is there for more than a day, he's going to toss it and get it the fuck out of there. But the impetus is I'm not using this. 
someone else might have a use for it. And I right. think that's great. But when people would leave like half a bag of chips, leave open boxes of food, there was once a half used bottle of lube. I was like, what are you thinking? Once there was a plate, a cup and a fork. Clean, but like sad dinner for one <laughs> ensemble. Some of the stuff that's been left there is really weird. In my um, brain, I can kind of make sense of the the dinnerware. I cannot make sense of. of the half bag of chips or the bottle of lube. Nope. I can't either, and that's why it's amazing. It's something that I saw happening, and I was like, what is this about? What are people doing? And then I got an iPhone and got on Instagram, and I was like, this is worth yeah, documenting. Seriously. And the downside is that the very next thing that was a bunch of shit left in the lobby was because somebody uh, passed away. And I was like, I can't right. do that. That's just wrong. But then after that stuff was gone, I just started documenting. And some of them are boring, but some of the stuff is, <laughs> it's just bizarre. I, I don't understand it. And sometimes it's a little artsy, I guess, when I get a nice little triptych or something a nice little panorama that someone has laid out for me and i never stage them they it's are as exactly is. where they are at, that's as amazing. is i try not to touch them beforehand yeah know, between so. that and the fact that apparently your markets really don't know what produce is between your posts and, and ron's <laughs> posts i'm like are y'all taking pictures at the yeah. same place because nope he, he shops at a different store, but it, I'll tell you, it's ubiquitous. It's at any store I go to. And it's simple. They run out of strawberries. They leave the sign up because they're going to get more in the next day and they don't want empty space. So they put blueberries in there. It's really easy, but I never think it's not funny. So, that is hilarious. Yeah. So we'll end on a Denver note, unless you think there's anything else we should touch. Yeah. We were talking earlier about the gender norms in the queer community. And I want to just generally say, I think it's simultaneously gotten better and worse out there. I don't know what the experience is in New York right now. There seemed, when I was there, to be a lot of bars active, but they seemed a little bit more niche, but maybe I misread that. It seemed like this bar is for this kind of crowd and this bar is for this kind of crowd. And there's a little bit of that in Denver too. I, I definitely would say that. But it also, I'm seeing more of an emergence of like a queer bar, which is more of a everything going on. And I really yeah. like that. So on the one hand, we have a bear bar here. And I kind of hate it because I, I will say this, in the mid-90s, when that bear culture started to emerge, I was like, yes, these are my people. These are people who are not muscle queens out there or leather guys necessarily but they're also not tweezed perfection right. going to the beautician kind of thing. It's just dudes. And I was like, this is a godsend. This is exactly my kind of thing. But then that started to codify into, you have to be a certain size. You have to be hairy enough. You have to be the, and if you're not, then you have to be something else or you don't belong in this bar. And that I was so disappointed in the way that sort of started with such a promise and then yeah. fell apart that it's kind of like to see it come back. There's a bar here that had a lot of problems around how they policed 
gender stuff in their place. And I hated it. And I was like, this is my favorite spot. It was my favorite spot. And it just took step after step down and down to becoming like, I don't like this. All the people, because of the history of it, all the people that I like and like to hang out with still go here. But the idea of it is just meh. And then when they closed, it was like, okay, fine. And it's kind of moved on. But to see another bar come back and sort of fill that is a little disappointing to me. I, you know? I think um, it's very similar to New York in a lot of ways. I mean, my experience almost exactly mirrors yours, where I identified when I was first coming out as sort of a cub, I guess, because I was stocky. And the guys, again, that I was attracted to tended to uh, skew more masculine. And I grew out of that culture kind of quickly because it became a lot of performative stuff. And I honestly have not been to a queer bar in New York City probably in 10 years. The last place that I went to regularly is this place called Metropolitan that's in Bushwick. And yeah, and it is a queer bar. It is men and women and whoever else. If anything, it's a hipster bar, but it isn't. It isn't a leather bar. It isn't a twink bar. Everybody's welcome. I got a similar vibe at Nowhere okay. when I was I've there. I haven't been to Nowhere, well. but that's good to know. I just want to have a drink and be with my people. And they don't have to be yeah. a specific type of people. I just want to feel comfortable and shoot a game of pool and listen to some good-ass music. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I, I see promise out there, and I see regression at yeah. the same time. And I guess it's the price of being out there is kind of losing a little bit of the, I don't know. When I first moved back here, there was a bar called the Foxhole and it was phenomenal. Sundays at the Foxhole, outdoors, summer was just, everybody went there. Simple as that. If you were anywhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, that was the place to go on Sunday, period. End of story. Age, gender, race, irrelevant. Everybody went there. And that was amazing and that just vanished and i don't see it back yet but i see indications that it could get there it's got a ways it's, to go, it's weird how the circle so. expands and contracts at the same time yeah it's yeah. kind of crazy to me so yeah i also get the idea of a masculine space and i i think there's something positive about that but I don't know. I get a little disappointed when I see people saying, oh, I don't like that place. There's too many women or whatever. That just grosses me out. You can't paint everybody with one brush. I would love to see places where bi guys are more accepted. I want to see a place where there are more women or there would be a mixture of people. My friend group isn't just one type of Well, you would have loved the Foxville. Hopefully when I do visit Denver, there is a place (laughs) like that that's comparable. We're working on it. Thank you, Patrick, for taking time out of your schedule of running a record store and watching movies when you're not running a record store to sit down and have a thoughtful conversation. Appreciate your candor and your honesty and uh, just love everything that you're doing. If you are in the Denver area, please go visit Twist and Shout. If you want to order from them online, you can go to twistandshout.com. No ampersand, the word and. And if you want to follow Patrick online, you can do so. He is on Instagram at IMPatBrick. Brown. And you can, of course, also follow Twist and Shout Denver on Instagram. Thanks again, Patrick. Appreciate you.
Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool-ass sticker. Lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. Quick shout-out to Calvin Williams for writing the music and... Uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace